Postcards are how we share short notes with people we love. The smallest books of the Bible are just that. Short messages from the apostles Paul and John to churches and believers in the early days of Christianity. Their letters address specific problems and help believers model the love of Jesus to a lost culture. They remind the church of God's forgiveness and the need to repair broken relationships. And most importantly, these postcards show us all how grace and truth can love and lead others to Christ. Don't you love the multi-generation service and all these kids and teenagers? and adults? It's just wonderful. It's wonderful. All these individuals that are on this platform, all two million of them, the worship ministry is touching their lives and helping them. It's just wonderful to be a part of this. Uh, I, I want to tell you, I'm, I'm wearing glasses today, and uh, I, if you got close to me, you would see that this eye is bloodshot. And I woke up Saturday morning... And it was all this way. I don't know why. It's not pink eye, and so I don't think I'm contagious, but I'm only fist pumping today. I'm doing no hugging, and I'm, not, and I'm trying to stay away. So I want you to know why I'm being so uh, distant today. Uh, I don't know what happened to me. That little blood vessel had to have popped, I guess, in my eye, but I don't know why. And the only thing I can, because I woke up Saturday morning this, so the only thing I can figure is um, I'm, I'm hearing out of these microphones, out of these speakers, everything going on in the back room. So if you guys could shut that down. The only thing I can figure is that um, I was dreaming, and I was fighting somebody, and he punched me in the eye. I don't know what else. I have no other explanation. But I want you to know that's going on. We had 150 of our members from Missouri City campus and Sugarland campus that went out and did mission projects yesterday. Uh, some went to Bassinet, 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 and uh, anti-human uh, uh, trafficking ministry and partnering with Second Mile Mission Center in uh, Fresno, in Rosenberg. And if you were one of those, we got to touch the lives of 700 people yesterday who needed their lives touched yesterday. And if you were a part of that, would you stand right now? And we want to say thank you for your involvement in this mission of yesterday. Oh, thank you for doing that. Yay, God. As advanced as technology is today, as advanced as communication is today, don't you still love it when you get a handwritten letter from somebody? They took the time, they sat down, they wrote out this handwritten letter. As long as it's legible and you really can actually read their handwriting, don't you love it that they took that extra bit to communicate with you? They're, they're special. Handwritten letters are special. And also cards. You, you get a special card. Maybe it's your birthday. Maybe, maybe it's Valentine's Day a couple of weeks ago. It's something, and you get a card, and it's got all these words that were written by whoever created the card. But after all those words, maybe, maybe there's a few words that are handwritten that just tell you how great you are. Don't you love that? Come on, you do. You love that. In fact, I have cards 
honestly, that different members of my family have sent to me, given to me over the years, and I've kept them. They're, they're in a drawer because they're, they're special to me. Well, there were also some handwritten letters 2,000 years ago that we still have, written by Paul and John and, and Peter and Jude and James. We still have those letters, and we call them books in the Bible. Now, there are also four other books in the Bible that are very small, very tiny books. They're just one chapter. For instance, in 2 John, it's just 13 verses. And in 3 John, it's just 14 verses. And in, in Jude and in Philemon, it's just 25 verses. They're just tiny little books. So if those other books are called letters, these little ones must be postcards. And so we're going to have for three weeks a series, a short series called New Testament Postcards and where we look at, at, least at three of these four small books that we call books of the Bible. And the one I want to look at today is the book of Philemon. Now, you may think, well, there's just that many verses. There are not many verses. It must not be all that important. But actually, every one of these books pack a deep punch. They really speak to our culture today. They speak to our heart as well. And the first one I want to look at is the book of Philemon. It was written in 60 A.D. by the Apostle Paul. He was in Rome. He was in uh, house, under house arrest, in prison, under house arrest. And people could come and see him and spend time with him, but he could not leave that house without permission. He was under house arrest. And he was waiting to have a meeting with the emperor Nero, who was the emperor at the time in Rome. And he would have that meeting. And in five years from that time, he would be executed by Nero. This letter was written by Paul while he was under house arrest, 60 A.D., for the purpose of bringing two people together who had a broken relationship and would have never come together had it not been Paul interceding. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. One of them, one of these two guys is a guy named Philemon. He's the guy that gets the letter. And he's a wealthy man. He owns land. He's, a, he's prosperous. He was a deeply devoted follower of Christ. And the second guy was a man named Onesimus, and Onesimus was his slave who stole from Philemon and then was a runaway. And Paul is trying to bring them back together under a different relationship, not as slave and master, but as brothers in Christ. And that's why he writes this short little postcard called the book of Philemon. In the Bible, in Galatians chapter 3, verse 28, it says this, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. This is one of the most radical verses in the Bible. You could not find a verse that would say anything, a statement that would say anything close to this in any other culture, in any other language, in any other country, in any other religion in first century. 
This was the most radical statement that anyone could make in first century. There is neither Jew or Gentile, slave or free, male or female. What is it saying? He is saying, in God's eyes, women and men are equal. In God's eyes, Jews and Gentiles are equal. Now, this is a statement about race because everyone who's not a Jew is a Gentile. So every one of the other races are involved in this, and he intends this to be about race. Jews and every other race in God's eyes are equal. That's what he's saying in the verse. And in first century, in the second half of the first century, in the Roman Empire, free and slave in God's eyes are equal. Nothing more radical could have ever been written in first century. What this is speaking to our heart today in the here and now is that Christians, we Christians, are the ones in this world who need to be champions for what the Bible teaches about equality because we are the ones that the Word of God was given to that says that we're equal. And so if anyone is championing equality, it should be us. Because this is what God teaches us in His Word. There's another radical statement that is made in the New Testament, and it is found in Luke chapter 6, verse 31. Do unto others as you would like them to do to you. He didn't say do unto others the way they do to you. He says do unto others the way you want them to do to you. And I'm going to tell you this. If we did that, all of us did that in our lives, our lives would be forever changed. And our trajectory of where we're going in our life would be changed if we would take that simple, radical statement and apply it to our life. Now, these two statements I want you to bring together because they bring to bear what is happening in the book of Philemon. They help us to understand the background of the story of Philemon both then and now. There was a man named Onesimus, and he was the slave of a man named Philemon. Onesimus stole money from Philemon. And he ran away, and he ran away to the city of Rome. The reason he ran to Rome is because in Rome, you can hide easily. In Rome, the capital of the Roman Empire, maybe half of the people that you would encounter in that city were slaves. And the other half were free men and women, but you could not tell the difference. They all looked the same. They all dressed the same. They all spoke the same. You couldn't tell the difference. And that's why if you are a runaway slave, the place to run to is Rome because you can't tell the difference in Rome. Who is what? This was about 10, 20 years before the security cameras came out. And so you, can't, you can hide in Rome and get away from it, get, get away with it. And Onesimus goes to Rome. While he's in Rome, he encounters some people, makes new friends with people. And of all things, of all things who could have seen this happen, one of those guys said, have you ever heard of this guy named Paul? He, he is an incredible guy. And no, I've never heard of him. And he went and met 
Paul, he went, Paul is under house arrest. He came, came into the house of Paul. He heard the gospel, Onesimus heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, accepted Jesus as his Savior, and then Paul began to disciple him. And Onesimus' life totally changes. And as he is being discipled, he begins to realize something's desperately wrong, and I've got to get it fixed. I've got to take what I've stolen from Philemon, and I've got to take it back to him. Here is the truth. God never leads us to avoid our sins or hide from them. God leads us to face them and through his power to overcome them and conquer them. And when Onesimus came to realize this, he said, I got to get this right with Philemon. But this was the craziest idea in the world because the truth is he could be killed going back to Philemon. Runaway slave stealing from his master. If he went back, Philemon had every right under Roman law to kill him. Now, here's the, the other crazy thing that's happened in the story. Philemon came to know Jesus Christ as Savior through Paul. Who would have put this together? The Apostle Paul led Philemon to Christ and, and mentored and discipled Philemon. And now here is Paul in Rome, and here comes Onesimus. And isn't it crazy? He is the one guy who could bring these two guys together. And here's what Paul says to Onesimus. I'll tell you, I know Philemon, and I will write him a letter, and I will tell him about the change that's happened in your life, and I will tell him he's got to restore the relationship with you, but not as slave and master, but as brothers in Christ. And that's what this book is about. And before we dig in to the verses in this short book, this postcard, I first want to talk you, to you about the subject of slavery. This is an uncomfortable conversation, but I want to talk to you about it. One, because Philemon, the whole book of Philemon is about this subject, and we've got to be honest about it. And second of all, because every so often I'll have someone say to me, I don't believe that the Bible is the Word of God. The Bible condones slavery, and slavery is wrong. So how could I possibly believe that the Bible is the Word of God? Okay, I hear the argument. One of the problems that happens is when we use words, the same word, but in different centuries. When people in the 21st century feel they have the moral capability of judging people in the first century, it creates a problem because the same words can be used in different ways in different centuries. And that is the case with this word slavery, and I want to talk to you about it. When we think about slavery in the 21st century, we think about American slavery of African slaves in our country. We think about the despicable way in which these men and women and these children were treated, kidnapped and brought over to this country and made slaves for life. We think about that. It was one of the most inhumane and evil things 
that could have ever happened. And it happened in our country. There's no excuse for it. And there's no justifying it. It has and will continue to bring shame to us as we look at our history. And God judged this country because of it. President Abraham Lincoln was right when he said that the Civil War was God's judgment upon America for the inhumane injustice that was perpetrated on men and women and children in slavery in America. And he was right. Now here's what I want you to hear me say. Another generation is coming in which they will look at this generation, us, and the generation just before us with the same level of disdain and reproach toward this generation. Because these two generations have put to death now 60 million preborn children through abortion. 60 million. God judged America once. And he'll judge us again for what is happening today. So why do I bring this up today? Because I'm not talking today about abortion. I'm talking about slavery. But why do I bring this up? Because the very same argument is being used today to justify abortion. It's the exact same argument. To justify abortion that was used to justify slavery. And what most, most people don't realize it. And this is why being a student of history is so important. We are reliving history in America and the worst history of our country. Now, I'm not going to talk about abortion today. I am going to talk about it in a few weeks when the time is right. And when I do, I'm going to show you that the, the argument that is used to justify abortion is just as shallow as the arguments were to justify slavery in America. But today, I'm talking about slavery. And the question that is asked is, how could the Bible be the Word of God and the Bible justify slavery? Here is the Apostle Paul addressing slaves and says, be faithful to your masters in the New Testament. Isn't he condoning slavery? The problem is, is that the word slavery in our history in America is applied very differently than it was in the second half of the first century in Bible times in the Roman Empire. And that's what I want to explain to you today. 
Murray Harris, who's an historian, wrote the book Slave of Christ, and he dedicates one chapter to give light to a very different understanding of slavery in first century Rome versus slavery in America. Murray Harris, in his book Slave of Christ, provides documentation that shows that most slaves, not all, but most, in the second half of the first century in the Roman Empire were usually the equivalent of indentured servanthood. Now, we don't use these kinds of terms today, so what in the world is indentured servanthood? Indentured servants are people who work for someone else for a set period of time to pay back a debt or because of a benefit they received. And the truth is, in early North America, many of the European settlers, not all of them and not even most, but many of them, came to the United States as indentured servants. You can go back in the history of England and of Holland and of Germany and other places, and you can bring up ads that were in papers of landowners that were in America who would go there and put an ad in the paper and say, if you want a free trip to America, then I will do that for you, but you have to work for me for X number of years. And then after those years, you are free, but you are in America. And you're never going to get to America another way but this way. And there were many people that came from Europe, white people, that came from Europe as indentured servants because they were impoverished. They couldn't get here any other way. And they worked for someone as an indentured servant for a certain period of time, and they were paid. And then once the years were up, they were free. In the first century Roman Empire, especially in the second half of the first century, there were also many slaves who were conquered people but were made slaves for a prescribed period of time. And by the beginning of the first century, there were very strict laws to protect them. That is not the case in the earlier centuries in Roman Empire. They were treated exactly the way Africans were treated as slaves in America in the centuries before first century A.D. But something happened in the Roman Empire. I don't know whether it was the Spartacus revolt. I don't know what it was in particular, but something happened in the beginning of the first centuries, and laws began to be enacted in the Roman Empire protecting slaves in the Roman Empire. And by the middle of the first century, it had evolved to a place of pretty much indentured servanthood instead of the slavery that we understand today. Why is this so important? Because when Paul is writing what he is writing about slaves, obey your masters, it is in the second half of the first century. It is with the new understanding of what this was in the Roman Empire. Murray Harris makes these observations. He says first century slaves were not distinguishable from anyone else by race, speech, or clothing. You could not tell the difference of who was a free person, a Roman citizen, and who was not. You could not tell the difference. They looked alike. They dressed alike. Their speech was alike. Second of all, he says that first century slaves were oftentimes more educated than their owners and many times held high managerial positions. And I think back, it's Old Testament, not New Testament, but you remember Joseph 
was sold in slavery in the book of Genesis, and he became master in Potiphar's house, overseeing everything in Potiphar's house. And what Harris is describing is that many times it was that kind of thing in the second half of the first century. First century slaves earned the same wages as free laborers. And therefore, we're oftentimes not poor and oftentimes accrued enough personal capital to buy their own freedom in advance. And what's interesting is that oftentimes, most of the time, in fact, when they bought their freedom or they expended the years that they were to expend, they would stay with the same person and make the same wages as a free person. None of this equates to what happened in slavery in the United States. You can find, you don't have to believe me and don't have to believe Harris. You can go to the website I've given to you in your notes and go spend some time and read it in Wikipedia. But make sure as you're reading it that you differentiate between centuries because in the earlier centuries, Slavery in the Roman Empire was just like slavery in America. But in the first century, when the New Testament is written, especially in the last half of it, it has totally changed. And you've got to make that differentiation to understand it. Abuses connected to first century slavery, such as being beaten or being kidnapped and sold into slavery, were all condemned by Paul. Which means that Paul's writings would be condemning what happened in America in the early years of slavery. Go back and read all these passages that I've given to you of Paul's writings, and it'll show you what I'm saying. He condemned the beating. He condemned whipping. He condemned taking people into slavery against their will. He condemned that. Go and read these verses. In first century, Christianity gave slaves an equal place in the church with everyone else. Some of those former slaves actually became pastors and elders. And in fact, several of the most prominent early church leaders were actually former slaves who had bought their freedom and rose to prominence in the early church. You can read about that in Wikipedia. I've given you the website to go to. In the Old Testament... All Jewish slaves were actually indentured servants and had to be treated with dignity. Read the passages of Scripture that gave the requirements. So what am I saying? I'm saying that the same word slavery is being used, but I'm saying that it is two different things, not anything close to what was happening in America. And Paul condemned the practices that were done in America. And you say to me, yeah, but wasn't it Christians who were slave owners in America and treating other people this way? Wasn't it pastors that stood in front of their churches and said that slavery was okay and justified it using the Bible to do so? And the answer is yes. Yes. And every one of those people, including those pastors, have died and stood before a holy God. 
and have been held accountable for what they did. And I'm telling you this. I'm not going to be one of those pastors who shies away from the hard topics and unwilling to address what Scripture says. And this is why we're going to talk about abortion in a few weeks. Not the whole sermon, but I'm going to talk to you about this. Because I'm going to meet my Lord one day, and I do not want to be in the same situation as those pastors in the South in slavery days. But here's what I also want to say to you. That it was also pastors in the North and Christians in the North who rose up and said this slavery has to stop and they worked tirelessly to end slavery in America. Those were Christians as well and those were pastors as well. Those were the good guys. And your pastor is one of the good guys. So I just want you to know that. And good looking too. I just, I just put that in there. Now let's talk about the story of Philemon. The story of Philemon pushes us to reconcile broken relationships with others in our life. And this is what I want you to see in this book. The first character of this postcard was this man Philemon, this wealthy Roman citizen. And Paul preached the gospel to him. He came to know Christ as Savior, and he was a devoted, fully devoted follower of Christ. So let's look at the scene. Here is Onesimus, and he's come back. And when Philemon sees him, he can hardly believe his eyes. You are back? But he's got a letter in his hand, a scroll in his hand, and he hands it to Philemon. And listen to what the scroll says. Philemon chapter 1, verse 1. This letter is from Paul. Whoa. A prisoner for preaching the good news about Christ Jesus and for... From our brother Timothy, I am writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia. Now, we don't know who Aphia is. Probably it's Philemon's wife. And our fellow soldier, Archippus. We don't know who Archippus is, but probably he's the pastor of that church. We're writing to Philemon, our beloved co-worker, and to our sister Aphia, and to our fellow soldier Archippus, and to the church that meets in your house, in Philemon's house. May God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ give you grace and peace. I always thank my God and I, when I pray for you, Philemon, because I keep hearing about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people. Paul is setting up Philemon. Okay? And I am praying that you would put into action the generosity that comes from your faith and that you would understand and experience all the good things we have in Christ. Your love has given me joy and comfort. My brother, for your kindness has often refreshed the hearts of God's people. He is starting to pour it on. Now, this is not flattery, false flattery. All these things are true about Philemon. And here is Onesimus standing in front of him, and here is this letter from Paul, and Paul is just saying, I want to remind you who you are. You are a follower of Christ. I want to remind you who you are. 
And now, verse 8, and that is why I am boldly asking a favor of you. I could demand it in the name of Christ because it's the right thing to do. Now, he is really putting the pressure on. Because of our love, Philemon, you and me, I prefer simply to ask you, consider this as a request from me, Paul, an old man. (laughs) I'm just an old man, Philemon, and I am a prisoner for the sake of Jesus Christ. And I'm asking you for a favor. You and I are such great friends. It is everything you're thinking is happening in this story. And in fact, Paul goes on to to remind Philemon that Philemon owes Paul big time. You owe me so much, Philemon. And so, even though Onesimus is not able to bring all the money back to you that he stole, just put what he didn't bring back to you on my account. And by the way, you owe me a ton. This is how he puts it. The second character in the postcard is Onesimus, and listen to how he describes it. Philippians chapter 1, verse 10. I appeal to you to show kindness to my child, Onesimus. I became his father in the faith while here in prison. Onesimus hasn't been of much use to you in the past. But now he is very useful to both of us. His life has changed. And I'm sending him back to you and with him comes my own heart. How in the world could Philemon do anything other than what Paul is telling him to do? You know what? We're grateful for it too. We want Onesimus to be forgiven. He is actually pleading for Onesimus' life. What is interesting to me is, he says Onesimus has not been very useful to you. But the name Onesimus means reliable. And he never lived up to his name until he came to know Christ as a Savior. Paul is saying in Philemon, the book of Philemon, I'm asking you, Philemon, bring him back, but not as a slave. Bring him back as a free brother in Christ. What is Paul asking Philemon to do? First of all, Paul is asking Philemon to forgive a man who stole from him and who caused great damage, even though Philemon will never get back all that was lost. Paul is asking Philemon to swallow his pride and go against common tradition in how an offense like that is usually handled. He is pushing him to not retaliate. And on what basis is he asking Philemon to do this? Paul is reminding Philemon that God has turned a terrible wrong into a greater good. That's Philemon verse 15. Paul is reminding Philemon that Onesimus is not now is now not just an offender, he has become a brother. And he is to love Onesimus now as a brother. That's verse 16. 
And Paul is reminding Philemon that God has forgiven Philemon a whole lot more than God is asking Philemon to, for now, forgive Onesimus. That is verse 19. So how does this apply to us? There really are some practical applications of this book for us today, and I'm asking you to make them. Here is the first one. We have a responsibility to face our wrongs. To not hide from what we have done. We have a responsibility to face our wrongs. And that involves confession and restitution to others we've wronged. So here's my question. Who have you wronged that you have not restored the relationship? God is telling you and I today, there's some people that you've wronged and you need to go get it right. There's a second thing. We have a responsibility to forgive, realizing how much we have already been forgiven by God. We have a responsibility to forgive those who have wronged us, to let it go and forgive. So who has hurt you? And you are holding that bitterness. God is saying to you, it's time to forgive. It's time to let this go. What happens in the story? Does Philemon take Onesimus back? What happens in the story? Well, we don't find out from Philemon. We can't. He wrote the book and then... Onesimus handed it to Philemon, and there is no part two. But then we came across something that took everybody by surprise. In 110 A.D., there was a man named Ignatius. He was a Christ follower. He ended up being martyred himself, dying for the cause of Christ. Ignatius was a godly guy, and he wrote letters to different people. They wrote letters in that day. And of all things, he wrote a letter. Ignatius wrote a letter to the church of Ephesus. And listen to how the letter begins. To the wonderful pastor and bishop Onesimus, who was formerly useless... but is now greatly useful for God. Is there any question? You know good and well. He wrote that because of the notation that Paul made about Onesimus in Philemon. Onesimus is now a pastor, and he's the pastor of the First Baptist Church of Ephesus. It must have been, I don't know. Did you know who was the former pastor of this church in Ephesus? It was the Apostle John. And did you know who they got after John died? Onesimus. Did Philemon forgive Onesimus? It's obvious, isn't it? And in fact, it is also obvious that Onesimus became a pastor and might have even become Philemon's pastor. I don't know. By the time this is written, Paul is long since dead. Probably Philemon is long since dead. And Onesimus is probably 70 years old. 
And look what God did. Only Jesus Christ can do this. Bringing two people together that could have never come together outside of Jesus. Now I'm asking you be the next story of the power of God. And let God bring you back to whomever it is that you have a broken relationship. The bottom line is this. One of the indicators that we truly are growing up in Christ is our growing willingness and courage to do the right thing no matter the consequences. Let's pray. Father, we come to you today and we thank you for this little postcard. Because of this great story, you have spoken to our heart today too. And God, I pray you would move in the hearts of men and women and children today that do not know Jesus as Savior, that this would be the day they would come to know Christ. And, oh God, I pray for broken relationships throughout this auditorium with extended family members and co-workers and other friends at school. And God, I pray you would use the power of your word, the example of these two men and of Paul, and the power of your Holy Spirit to restore relationships this week as we are willing to go out and say yes to you. Now, Father, move in hearts, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen.